We're in John chapter 17, verses uh, 1 through 21. Jesus is speaking here. Actually, he's praying. He's praying before God. So, um, you likely you should pay attention. One of the one of the uh, the cool things, you know, um, this is, you know, if you look at the actual manuscripts, there's no such thing as a red letter manuscript. Okay, so the original manuscripts they didn't do this thing like whenever Jesus spoke, it was in red letters. But I got to tell you that as a helps thing, it's nice to have it. Okay, so if you have one of those red letter Bibles where Jesus is speaking about anytime, anytime Jesus is speaking about something, probably a good idea to pay attention and to look at what he's actually saying. So here he's kind of summing things up because this is just before he's arrested, it's just before the betrayal, and he's been spending time with the disciples. He's been talking to them about you know what's going on. So now he's done talking to them, and he's going to talk. To God. And so this is his prayer before God as it's recorded before he goes through his uh, ordeal. Okay? So let's read it together. Starting at 17, going through 21. Now, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he looked up to heaven and said, uh, Note here that when Jesus prayed, he didn't bow his head, he looked. We're not going to do that as a doctrinal thing here. I'm just saying that that's how he prayed, okay? So, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that he can give back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone in all the earth, and he gives eternal life to each one you have given him. This is the way to have eternal life to know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by everything that you have told me to do. And now, Father, bring me unto glory that we shared before the world began. I have told these men about you. They were in the world, but now you gave them to me. Actually... They were always yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that I have is a gift from you, for I have passed it on to them, the words that you gave me. And they accepted them, and they know that I have come from you, and they believe that you sent me. My prayer is not for the world but for those who you have given to me, because they belong to you. And all of them, since they are mine, belong to you, and you have given them back to me, so they are my glory. Now I am departing the world. I am leaving them behind and coming to you. Holy Father, keep them and care for them, for those you have given to me, so that they will all be united just as we are. During my time here, I have kept them safe. I have guarded them so that not one is lost except for the one headed for destruction, as Scripture foretold. And now I am coming to you, and I have told them many things while I was with them so that they would be filled with my joy. 
I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They are not part of this world any more than I am. Make them pure and holy by teaching them your words of truth. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. I give myself entirely to you so that they also might be entirely yours. I'm praying not only that these disciples, but also for those who will ever believe in me because of their testimony. My prayer for all of them is that they will be one just as you and I are one. Father, that just you are in me and I am in you. So, they will be in us and the world will believe that you sent me. Okay. This, from this section of scripture, we have an affirmation of basically what it is that we've been going over the last several weeks. So you should be able to pull out of here some very basic issues that sometimes come up in regard to how Christians think, how those that claim that they're Christians think. Um, There are some basic issues here which always remain the same. They They don't change. So first and foremost... Christ makes it very clear, Jesus, in his discussion with the Father, makes it very clear that he's not here to do his deal. He's here to do the Father's. So God sent him into the world, and in sending him into the world, Jesus' whole reason for being here was to do the will of the Father. Now there's a there's a uh, a communication that takes place between the Godhead, and that's alluded to here. Um, but the reality of it is, God sent Jesus Christ into the world so that those who are His might be called out. And Jesus Christ becomes the vehicle through which those who are gods are going to be called out of the world. Now, I don't want to get into the whole predestination, reform, Calvinism thing of all that type of stuff where we get into, you know, those who are called out by God, those they're really predestined to, and those that are on the way to destruction, they're predestined to. And yeah, I don't want to get into that. That's a subject for the elder cadets because they have to know that stuff. Good reading, right? Yeah, loved it. Okay, but you guys really don't have to know that that much. What you do need to know is that Scripture does allude to, let me just say this in regard to that, Scripture alludes to this issue of the fact that those who follow after Jesus Christ follow after Christ because they have been gods from the beginning and he has called them out through Jesus Christ. 
We find no place else in Scripture um, via the Apostle Paul, who also alludes to this issue, um, or any of the other writers, any type of a systematic theology that you can make something of or not. So the reality of it is what you need to know is that God had a plan. And part of his plan from the beginning, as is stated here, was that Christ would come into the world in order to set straight, in order to reconcile man to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. That is what is being said here. What is also being said here is that that's an exclusive arrangement. I know that there are lots of people who would like to think, and we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to elaborate for time's sake, but there are lots of people out there, particularly in today's age, who believe that there are several ways that you can get to God. You can come to God through Muhammad, you can come to God through Buddha, you can come to God through Krishna, you can come to God through so many other ways. But Jesus makes it very specific here that that's not the case. He states quite clearly that God sent him to be the vehicle of reconciliation and only through him does reconciliation take place. If you don't know God through the work of Jesus Christ, you don't know God. This is not my word. This is not what I'm saying. This is what Jesus said here in his prayer before God and to even to his disciples. He says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Very exclusive. So you need to understand these people that are out there today that are preaching that they know God and they can get to God this way, that way, and any other way. I'm sorry. That's not what God's Word says. And quite frankly, you have a responsibility as a disciple of Christ to take steps to correct that statement. Now that may not make you a lot of friends. But remember, you're not supposed to be friends with the world. You are to be in the world. You are to understand what's going on in the world around you. But you are to see things from God's perspective. And you are to share God's perspective on how it is that things are happening around you. So when somebody makes an obvious statement which doesn't line up with the Word of God, you do have a responsibility to say something. Now, of course, the, the offset of that is that, you know, you better train yourself on what God's Word really says, and you better train yourself on how to communicate and on how to have that discussion so that you're able to do so. But you cannot take a middle ground. Remember we talked about last week that in the Revelation, in the book of Revelation, 
the church at Laodicea was going to be spit out of the mouth of God because neither hot nor cold. You have to be hot for God. You have to be willing to take a stand. And when somebody says directly something which contradicts God's Word, you have to say, no, excuse me, not so, not so. You need to prepare yourself for that. And I would encourage you to do so. Now here at Aletheia, we try to make it so that you're prepared to be able to do that. But we are coming to a time where there is not going to be the availability to tickle people's ears. You're going to need to have to take a stand. <laughs> Excuse me. Part of the reason why we have many of the issues that we have today in society is because the church has been unwilling to take a stand based upon what God's Word says. The sexual revolution is because people are not willing to take a stand. They would rather use euphemisms in order to um, deal with, you, you know, with, uh, with what's going on. You know, in the old days, if somebody was shacking up with somebody, you'd just say they were shacking up. That meant if they were, if they were living together and they were not married, then they were fornicating. You just call it like it was. Even when I was a youngster, that was the case. As I grew up into the 1960s, and I began became somewhat cognizant of this, and through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, it was no longer, how dare you say that people are shacking up. Let's just say that they're living together without the benefit of clergy. That's a euphemism. It's not calling it what it is. They're fornicating. That's what Scripture says. Because attached to that concept are other things that affect God's design and purpose. You as His disciples need to understand God's design and purpose. So you go back to God's Word to understand what that design and purpose is. We cannot use euphemisms. We cannot set aside truth and allow it to exist as a lie. But the church has done that probably most exclusively from the early, late 1800s to early 1900s. The church refused to address many issues surrounding what Scripture has to say. Jesus is saying quite clearly that we are not to be of the world. You are not to be of the world. You cannot live a double standard and say that you love Jesus Christ and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, but act as if you're not. It permeates every aspect of who you are. And so Jesus is saying here, commending to God, protect those who are now yours. He has been true to His witness. He provided the vehicle. So in Scripture, we see that God, through His Holy Spirit, seeks to protect us as we have to live in the world, but we're not of the world. Jesus understood that clearly, and that's the reason why He prayed in this manner. 
He prayed that the church would be unified. One of the things that obviously many disciples of Christ really didn't understand in regard to this was that we're supposed to be unified. We're supposed to be unified around Jesus Christ. Now, your elder cadets for the last two years have been forced to go through, well, not forced, they've been encouraged. Um... No, if they want to be elders, I guess they've been forced. Look, part of the eldership program is that they're required to read church history. So we start out with Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. Any of you could read this. If you want to have a real overview, an understanding of how theologically we are where we are today, read this book. Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. Great book. This year... We're going one step further. See, Shelley was kind of an overview of church history. This year, we have been going through a three-volume set by Gonzalez, which goes into depth about all the controversies that exist and all the drama that has existed over the years. And one thing you discover as we look at the theologies that we hold today, there have been lots of fighting and infighting and scrappling and not a lot of love shown on the part of many. And yet Jesus' prayer for the church was that there would be unity. How is it that the world will know who we are? Uh, through our love for one another. Through him. But that's really, really, really been difficult for the church to be able to, to, to live that in practicality. Because to a large degree, many who say that they follow Christ don't understand who he is. Now, I understand that there's going to be some controversy over, uh, over certain aspects of how that works out practically. How many of you here? How many here have uh, have read the Church Constitution? One, two, three. Okay. So those of you who have not read the Church Constitution, shame on you. Shame on you. Because the, it's available, by the way, on the website. So if you haven't read the Church Constitution then you don't know what it is that we believe based on what the Constitution says. Now, if you had had the opportunity to listen to the elders debate the theological, the, the theological implications of the statements which are made in our Constitution, you might come to the conclusion that we were fighting One of the things that people would say in regard to the uh, to Thursday night Bible study before it evolved into uh, short bus was that uh, Josh and I and sometimes a couple others would get into some very vigorous debates over certain aspects of what we were discussing. A vigorous debate does not mean that we don't love one another. 
or that we're fighting. It means that we're debating the various aspects of what's there. That's how we come to an understanding. You know that you learn better to articulate your thoughts when you verbalize them? And then you allow somebody to critique what you've just verbalized? Sometimes you say things that you didn't think you really meant to say, or have you ever said something and then corrected yourself midway and said, wow, that really sounds stupid, or I didn't really mean to say that? Well, that's because you, you, you learn how to debate by verbalizing what your thoughts are and, and allowing somebody to critique you and be in that process. That's a healthy process. But in all of the time that, and quite frankly, there are, there are times when uh, my son and I go at it and people will just step back and just let us go at it because they're like, they're fighting. We're not fighting, we're having robust discussion. There's no question about our love for one another, and there are times where we simply agree to disagree or to set it aside so that we may come back to it later. But there's no question that we still love one another. See, the church is supposed to be able to do that because first and foremost, we are to be united in our love for Jesus Christ in the central tenets of what it is that Christianity teaches. Jesus knew that one of the largest issues the church would face is division within the church. And that it would be detrimental to his witness before the world and the ability to allow people to come to him. We will be known by our love, is what he indicated earlier in the book of John. And so he prays before the Father that there will be unity. For it is in that unity that he will be known. Now, I would have to say that historically we have failed uh, immensely. It's a disaster in a lot of ways. But there still is that need for unity. And where does it start? It starts in the local body. And then the local body, it grows out from the local body to other bodies. We have a responsibility to love one another, we have to be true to the word, we have to be allowed to discuss, but there is a responsibility to love one another. So we need to look at those questions. This is one of the reasons why, by the way, as a fellowship, we decide to still affiliate with CB Northwest, even though they do absolutely nothing for us. Conservative Baptist Association has done in the 20 years that I've been affiliated with this body absolutely zero. Nothing for this body. We still continue to associate with them because we have a responsibility to try to be uh, neighborly and try to be show Christ's love through how it is that we respond to their ambivalence. 
it may not be, you know, we maybe we could do more, but um, we've got our hands full with taking care of the stuff we have here, like leaks and things like that. Nonetheless, we continue to try to have a relationship with other churches around us who, you know, have not been very neighborly. Because we have a responsibility to do what we're responsible to do. Jesus understood that this was going to be a major issue. He also understood that the church was going to go beyond the disciples themselves. He said clearly to God as he begins to wind down his prayer, he commits not only the disciples as the church itself is now being established, but he also commits the legacy of the church, the progeny of the church, that is, those who have heard the testimony of the disciples and who have believed now become a part of the church, he has committed them as well. Who who are them? Yeah, you, you and I. We are them. Jesus prayed for us as well. We who are in the midst of what's happening today. We have been prayed for by Jesus to the Father that we might be protected. That's substantial. It's substantial because, again, it reminds us that we're not alone. The church didn't just start. You know, one of the theories in regard to, in regard to creation is that God just set things in motion and He left and He let it run by itself. Well, we kind of believe in a God, but He's not really here. We can't really communicate with Him um, or, or have anything to do with Him. We try to worship Him, but He's not really, really. That's not what we see inside of Scripture. Jesus says before the Father in his prayer, you sent me here with purpose and design. I fulfilled that purpose. Now I have to leave, which is part of the purpose, and I'm praying for the church which is going to be left so that it too might be what you have called them out to be. Why? Because they are no longer a part of the world. They have been called out. How is it that he deals with his church now? Through... Did you just say text? Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you could have. I mean, I, you know, I'm just, that's, that's why I'm asking. Okay, no. No, he doesn't deal with us through text. He... Okay, yes. Well, no, no, he doesn't. Because where's Christ? Christ is in the heavenlies beside the Father. Who sent, who did he send? Holy Spirit, yes. <laughs> okay. He deals with the church through the Holy Spirit. And he deals with the church as the Spirit works amongst us. Where is the Holy Spirit? He indwells us, right? He indwells us. He indwells each one here. He indwells the body and guides the body through the issues that we have to face. So that God didn't leave us, but rather through His Spirit, He's working 
to bring us to a position of holiness. We're already holy through the blood of Christ, right? That's the reason Christ came, so that we might be holy before God, because we're covered by His blood. Positionally, we are holy already. We talked about this last week. I talked about St. Brittany. I talked about, you know, St. Kelsey. I talked about St. Wind. I talked about these different saints. You're already made. You are holy positionally. But you're learning what it means to be holy. So you're in that process of sanctification where the Holy Spirit teaches you what it means to be holy. That's a process that we're in and a process that Jesus prayed for, for the church. So what this passage does for me is it solidifies what we've already talked about. This prayer solidifies basic biblical theology that we've already talked about and you should, it should be familiar to you. That's why by now, everyone here should have a five-year plan. I didn't give you the assignment to have a five-year plan, but you took to heart what I told you last week, and you went home and you started writing on a five-year plan, right? No? I'm dashed. I'm dashed. I have a five-year plan. You all already know that. In fact, I have a one-year plan. I have a six-month plan. In six months, I'm retired. That's my plan. And I'm working on it. You need to have a plan for what God is doing in your life. You need to write those things down. We joke about it, but, but it's important for you to understand and to know where you're going. Where the, not only where you're headed, but how are you going to get there and what steps do you need to take to get there? That's part of our responsibility physically so that you can take those plans you need to, you know. Do I buy a house or do I continue to pay rent? The beauty is if you rent, then you can call somebody else to clean up your water when it spills all over. The bad part is, if you buy a house, then you're the one out there cleaning up the mess that's making the mess. So, you know, so you weigh one against the other, you know, do I buy a house, do I not? Am I going to have kids, am I not? What's that going to cost me? Where am I going to, you know, how am I, am I going to put money away or am I not? All those questions that you have to ask are based upon your understanding that God has a design and plan for you. And are you going to participate in that, or are you just going to let it happen? Remember what I told you last week? If you let it happen, for sure, you will get there. Why? Because you ain't going no place. People who don't have a plan go nowhere. They just kind of drift. The church should not be that way. You should not, as disciples of Christ, just drift. Not in your physical life or in your spiritual life. 
there are many people who became believers of Jesus Christ 30 years ago, and they're still 30-year-old babies. All they've done is sit in a pew for 30 years, and the pew has fashioned the shape of their buns, and it fits them just fine, but they're still spiritual babies. After 30 years, you should be mature in your faith. But there are many people who aren't. You know why? Because they don't have a plan. Because they don't plan out to read their Scripture. They don't plan out to pray. They don't plan out to have a quiet time. They don't plan out to study. They don't plan out to do the things that they need to to be able to grow. Now, for sure, sitting under the teachings of the elders here, you're going to grow. Just by osmosis, you're going to grow. This is one of the, you know, one of the reasons why I'm as spiritually mature as I am? Because I sleep with the Bible under my pillow. Because it just soaks in through osmosis. You're going to grow a little bit just by the fact that you're here. But you will not grow to the potential that you should if you don't have a plan. That's why I encourage you to have a plan. And you know what? I can't make it for you. I can guide you in what it might look like. We can talk about the elements that should be there. But it needs to be your plan. We talked about this as well. I would never want you to say, you know what? I'm so excited about what's happening in church because I, have, I am following Pastor Monty's plan. It's not my plan. It's your plan. At some point, there has to be ownership. You have to take it as your own. At some point in life, you have to make the decision that you're going to follow Jesus Christ because you want to follow Jesus Christ, not because your parents want to follow Jesus Christ. At some point you're going to have to make a decision that you're going to tithe, not because you were told to tithe but be, or, or coerced to tithe, but because you love God and you want to see your money used in an exciting way through the church. Yes, you're commanded to tithe, but my friends, aside from that command, it's because you want to do it. So you not only have to take the initiative to de- develop a budget... You would be surprised how many people give me the, the deer-in-the-headlights look when I ask them if they have a budget. Now, the reason why they're talking to me is because financially they're screwed up in their business or personal to begin with. So I sit down, and one of the questions I ask them is, do you have a budget? I get the deer-in-the-headlight look. I just say, okay, no, you don't. Sorry. You need a budget. You need to sit down and write down what's important. You need to figure out where your money is going. 
More importantly, you don't need to figure out where it's going. You need to tell it where to go. That's what a budget does. A budget makes it so that you are telling your money where to go and what it's going to do for you. You know what's at the top of my list on my budget? Anybody want to guess? Tithing. On the top of my budget. Because I determined that that's where it belongs. My parents, <laughs> they, they, they didn't even go to church, let alone tithe. So I didn't have anybody telling me what to do. But I love God. And so because I love God, it's my decision that I'm going to spend my money in a particular way. You need to do that. I can tell you you need to do that, but until it becomes your conviction, you're not going to do it. That's really what living for Christ is all about. It's letting the Holy Spirit inform you and fill you to a degree that you have a revelation, as it were, where you say, wow, I'm going to live for God. That's my decision. When people say that, by the way, that's where you get the boldness to say, I don't think so. When somebody somebody says, for example, you know what, they're sharing now. Well, because it's direct sharing, it's not gossip. But that's another subject. Look, it was somebody sharing to you. They say, you know what? My friend and I, we're going to move in together. Are you married? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Um, we're friends. We're friends with benefits. You mean you're screwing one another? What did you say? Would you prefer I be more direct? With the F word? You clearly understand what I'm saying. God's word says, that's for, I was thinking fornication. Shame on you if you were thinking a different word. I was thinking fornication. The F word, God's word says, that's inappropriate sexual behavior. See, the reason you have boldness to be able to say that is because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and you understand things from God's perspective, not the world's perspective. That, my friends, is what we are called to. Jesus prayed that we would understand that and that we would desire as His disciples to bring glory to Him through how it is we live. Over the past several weeks, I've given you lots of food for thought. In the next couple of days, the elders are going to go off and we're going to plan on giving you more food for thought. We're going to put together, we're going to work into our five-year plan how things are going and what our desire is in order to lead you that you might be mature in your faith, but also that we might represent Christ appropriately in this community. So we're going to be involved in that process. Because let me tell you something. The elders of this church... We own it. We own it. We want you to own it too. We want you to be a church that is hot for Jesus Christ and on fire and committed to Him in every aspect of your life. You don't get there through happenstance, my friends. 
You don't get there by, you know, getting pumped up and excited. We could do as a rally. We could do as a Jesus rally and I could get you all pumped up and you could go, yeah, for Jesus. And get all pumped up and then you get back home and you go, I don't know. I mean, he's exciting, but I don't know. No, you have to, you got to own it. And we want to work with you to where we as a body, our reputation in the community, in the church at large, our community is, we might be small, but we own it. It's going to get ugly. You hear this discussion going on about all the politics right now? Worldwide phenomena going on right now with terrorism and what have you? There are things happening around us that if you understand what Scripture says in regard to the end times and the apocalyptic nature of where we live today, it's going to get ugly. And unless you own it, Unless we as a body own it, we're disciples of Christ and we love Him and we desire to live for Him in every aspect of our lives because we're sold out to who He is. Unless you own it, it's going to get so ugly that I fear that there will be many that will fall by the wayside. We, as an eldership, do not want any of you to fall by the wayside. And so this week as you go out, as you're doing your activities, again, I'm going to encourage you, look at your life. See if you need to have more direction. If you know where you're going physically, if you know where you're going spiritually, if you you know, need direction in a certain way, You know, you can always come back to the eldership and you can say, you know what, I've been praying about it. Uh, I need a Bible study in a certain area. Or I need some training or help in a certain area. We want you to be able to accomplish that. We have ideas about what it is that your needs are, but we don't know them entirely unless you share that with us. And that's the reason why we ask you to look at your own life. Look at your own growth. Look at where things are headed so that we can work with you to guide you so that you will own your relationship with Jesus Christ 100%. Let's close.